0: This week, how the nuclear bomb changed the stories we tell about scientists. The idea that science and technology
1: could bring about the end of the world um, was psychologically hugely
2: powerful. And Ebola is finally on the wane. But what can we learn for future epidemics?
3: Sometimes people ask me, um, what do I think the next big pandemic or epidemic is going to be? And I always answer, it's the one that nobody ever thought of. It's the one that nobody ever imagined.
0: Plus, working out how organisms reproduced over half a billion years ago. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy.
2: 70 years ago this week, the US military dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city, Hiroshima. Three days later, another was dropped on Nagasaki. Between them, the bombs killed tens of thousands, ushering in the end of the Second World War. These atomic bombs were the product of the Manhattan Project, a huge research and development programme which brought together many of the great scientists of the day. In the immediate aftermath of the war, the development of the bomb was somewhat celebrated by the West as a means to avoid future conflict. But in the decades that followed, public opinion changed as the Cold War formed between Western and Eastern states, with both sides developing vast arsenals of nuclear arms. All out nuclear war, and with it the destruction of human civilization, became a very real public fear. But did the fear of the nuclear bomb spill into concerns about science itself? And if so, how did this change the stories we told about scientists in the 20th century? Science journalist Phil Ball has written on this topic.
1: The idea that science and technology could bring about the the, you know, the end of the world um, was quite new and was psychologically hugely powerful and I think that was clear from a lot of the films and books and discussions around scientists at that time.
2: Stories of scientists creating destructive forces predate the Second World War. In Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Dr Frankenstein creates a literal monster. But the nature of the threat was different back then
1: up until the 20th century, this idea of the scientist as a potential threat is, is very much couched in terms of the, the the lone scientist making a discovery and doing something terrible with it. So, you know, that's certainly what happens in Frankenstein. It's also what happens in Jekyll and Hyde. It's what happens in H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man. These are all loners working in an attic somewhere and making some terrible discovery. Whereas in the 20th century these suspicions of science became much more about science as an institution. People became aware that that science was now, in some ways, very closely connected to the military. It was then that you started to see some kind of perception that there was this thing called the um, the the military industrial complex that military and industry were going hand in hand to create catastrophic potentially catastrophic
2: weapons in the post-nuclear bomb age the stories we told about scientists took on a new shape cinema may offer a good place to investigate these changes
1: The role of uh, science and in particular of nuclear science in public consciousness is very clear in the kind of all the famous B movies from the 1950s in particular. I mean, Godzilla being one, he's, you know, mutated by uh, radioactivity. The one that is often referred to quite rightly
2: uh, is Dr. Strangelove. In the film, by Stanley Kubrick, Dr Strangelove is the unhinged nuclear science advisor to the President of the United States, a darkly comedic parody of the government scientists of the day. The story concludes with the annihilation of the entire world due to a nuclear doomsday machine, which was supposed to act as a deterrent.
0: The whole point of the doomsday machine is lost. If you keep it a secret, why didn't you
1: tell the world, eh? It's kind of striking that um, you know, Kubrick handles this as satire, as though to say, well, <laughs> what the hell, we, there's nothing we can do about this.
2: Filmmakers and storytellers were not the only groups simplifying portraits of scientists. According to David Edgerton, a historian of science at King's College London, spokespeople for science were keen to propagate myths of their own.
4: They wanted to show that science and war essentially had nothing to do with each other, that science was on the side of peace, uh, on the side of the good rather than the, than the bad. And once the bomb came to be associated with the bad, uh, this distancing had to be demonstrated. So, for example, one of the first books on the atomic bomb was called Brighter Than a Thousand Suns, The Moral and Political History of the Atomic Physicists. So, yes, very particular stories were told in what was seen as a, as a defence of uh, scientists against the charge of being responsible for these horrors of the, modern, of the modern world.
2: David doesn't think science was as distrusted as it may appear in the wake of the atomic
4: bomb. Well, there was certainly a fear of, of what scientists was capable of. That's, that's very different from a notion of, of distrust or mistrust of, of, uh, of, of science. Of course, uh, people recognised that, that the bomb could destroy uh, the world. Um, and, of course, they were, they were worried about that. Now I know scientists have a tendency, or at least certain misguided spokesmen for and women for science, uh, tendency to say that science is distrusted and that is a major problem. I don't think science is, is distrusted. Scientists tend to be more trusted than, uh, say, journalists or, or politicians. Age, it
2: seems, impacts people's relationship with the atomic bomb. For younger generations that didn't live through the Cold War, the threat of nuclear weapons may feel abstract. But for people like Phil Ball, who grew up in the 1960s, the atomic bomb still conjures up strong fears.
1: My suspicion is that anyone who is at least as old as me has that idea, that fear really deeply in their consciousness. Um, So it is something that I think about. It's actually something that I even dream about. Um, And you know those images that we saw in the films of the 1960s and the 1970s of mushroom clouds are are still very very strong and it actually concerns me slightly that this is something that has gone off the boil because you know i think it is still uh, a danger a threat that we need to think about very
2: carefully that was phil ball and before him david edgerton head over to nature.com forward slash news for a piece out last week on the second world war
0: the war that would become known as the Physicists' War. Coming up, more unsettling discussion as we look back at the Ebola epidemic. But first, it's time for the
5: research highlights with Jeff Marsh. A new species of carnivorous plant has been discovered from an amateur naturalist's Facebook photos. The social network snaps were shared with biologist Paulo Minatel Gonella from the University of Sao Paulo who quickly realised the significance of this plant kingdom status update. He and his colleagues went to find the insect-munching sundew plant, now technically known as Drosera magnifica, which is confined to a single habitat on a mountain in southeastern Brazil. Sadly, although this plant's got a lot of likes amongst botanists, its close relatives are considered critically endangered because coffee and eucalyptus plantations threaten their habitat. You can read that article in full in Phytotaxa the risk of colon cancer from red meat may be boosted by gut microbes. A pigment found in red meat called heme has been linked with this killer disease as it damages cells lining the gut, causing them to proliferate out of control. To assess the role of the gut microbes, researchers at the University Medical Center Utrecht fed mice a diet containing heme, whilst giving some a side dish of antibiotics. The mice given antibiotics showed no increase in gut damage or cell proliferation. Heme increased the levels of certain bacteria which break down the gut mucus lining, exposing the gut cells to the damaging heme. The researchers suggest that monitoring mucus degradation in the gut could serve as a useful biomarker for colon cancer risk. For the full story, visit PNAS.
0: Perry's not here this week, but before she left, she took a look at the Ebola epidemic, asking what it will take to end it and whether future outbreaks can ever be predicted or planned for.
6: The worst is over. Ebola is finally on the wane in West Africa. Thousands have died during the outbreak, mostly in three countries, Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. But right now, except for a little uptick in Liberia last week, the number of cases is dropping off. David Morans is an epidemiologist with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease in the States, and he's a medical doctor. He was in Guinea treating patients when I spoke to him this week.
3: Overall, um, there are far fewer cases, and it's not clear the epidemic will go away, but it's certainly been puttering along at a lower level recent weeks, and it feels that way in country. Some of the alarm that was raised when you know everybody knew friends and family who were dying That's not happening now. The cases are fewer and far between and most places seem to be free of Ebola at the moment.
6: It would be easy to think that this is the outbreak coming to an end. But that would be a dangerous mistake. In this clip, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon is speaking at the International Ebola Recovery Conference in New York earlier this month.
3: We have
5: to uh, go until the end, until we see the last uh, patient cured and there will be no further uh, cases. But the political
6: response to the epidemic has not always been this rigorous. That's according to Joanne Liu, the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders.
3: From, I would say, March 2014 until basically the end of July, there were very, very few actors that were uh, responding to the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. It's only when, uh, when there were the first cases of uh, international aid workers were infected and repatriated in the States that finally the world woke up.
6: But there have been things to celebrate. David Morin's treating patients in Guinea has been impressed by the response of local people in local health systems.
3: Having myself lived and worked in Africa before, I was here in the 70s working in Sierra Leone on loss of fever. The ability of the local systems, the physicians and nurses, the ministries of health, to scale up and meet a tremendous challenge working with international partners and um, they themselves, these countries, having very few funds and limited resources, I think they've done a remarkable job.
6: But it's not clear that all the lessons learned from the Ebola outbreak this time round will transfer to future pandemics, particularly in predicting when and what those pandemics will be. David Morans again.
3: I think our ability to predict a pandemic before it occurs is really close to zero right now. Of all the things we can do or might be able to do in the future, predicting epidemics is not something that I think is very likely we're going to be able to do. It's not that we don't know
6: about the science of viruses or transmission. It's that viruses can mutate so quickly they'll always be ahead of us.
3: Sometimes people ask me, um, what do I think the next big pandemic or epidemic is going to be? And I always answer, it's the one that nobody ever thought of. It's the one that nobody ever imagined.
6: Morin's is a modest and measured speaker. But like any infectious disease specialist, he has kind of a dark imagination.
3: You know, I think of it kind of, I think of scenarios. What if the next thing is some, uh, an outbreak of some disease just as deadly anywhere in the world um, and it threatens to become pandemic and the Western world is not going to be spared? What capacity do we have to stop it? What do we need to have in place to be assured we could stop it? I don't know the answer to that. We don't have anything right now, but we maybe should have and we should think and talk about it.
6: Perhaps imagining an outbreak striking the Western world could help us prepare for future outbreaks, wherever they are. David Morans finds much to be hopeful for, even in the face of the current outbreak, the worst in living memory.
3: 10,000 or so people died. You know, you could say that's a terrible failure. But on the other hand, now we're having a trickle of cases today. And the difference between then and now, in great measure, I think, is due to the application uh, in, a, in a wide geographic area of uh, very intensive public health efforts it's made a difference not a cure it's not an, uh, an absolute preventive but it it it, uh, it it dialed down a terrible epidemic into one that is just bad
6: david morans epidemiologist from the nih and before him joanne liu international president of médecins sans Frontières.
0: For more analysis of the Ebola epidemic, including a feature, comment pieces and news of a successful vaccine trial, head to our specials page, nature.com forward slash Ebola.
2: Sharmini Bundell has been getting all excited this week over the reproductive methods of some strange pre-Cambrian blobs. So we sent her off to find out more
7: there is a strange period after the two billion years when there was only microbial life but before the famous cambrian explosion this was the ediacaran period and the stuff that evolved back then was weird so weird we have no idea how its inhabitants relate to any living creature today what we do now know however thanks to a new paper in nature is how one of them reproduced it seems a pretty big leap to go from what is this to and this is how it had babies in a single paper So I've come to the Earth Sciences Department at Cambridge to quiz Dr Emily Mitchell, who's lead author on the study, and find out how you work out the reproductive strategy of something that died 565 million years ago. So Emily, first off, what is this creature
8: that you've been studying? I've been studying uh, Fractifusis, which is this uh, Ediacaran macro-organism that's one of the oldest, large, complicated organisms in the fossil record. And you've got... Um, some, are these casts of fossils here? Yes, uh, these are some casts from the bedding planes that we studied you can see it's, it's quite large, maybe 15 centimetres long um, and you can see it's got um, lots of different s- segments and then within each segment you've got branches and then you've got sub-branches coming off it
7: So it's a sort of flat blob sitting on a rock. There's no eyes or head or legs or anything? No.
8: (laughs) No, compared to animals, they are relatively simple. Not only kind of we don't see mouths uh, or legs, we don't see any kind of feeding apparatus at all. So it's thought that instead, uh, instead of kind of actively feeding they absorb nutrients from the water column directly through the membrane
7: so it's quite a strange creature i can imagine it sort of sitting on a, on a rock at the bottom of the sea and I, and I imagine that in the sea today there are sessile creatures mm. that, that work in
8: different ways is there anything at all like this no not at all They're, these really are very very unique uh, their, their body structures are. We just don't don't find anything like them. And this makes it really hard to work out how it relates to animals.
7: OK, so we're not quite sure exactly what this is, mm. but we've got a lot of fossils of them. Mm. And your paper is actually about working out the reproductive strategy. So that's whether it budded off and had little baby clones or it had eggs and sperm going into the ocean. But how is it possible to know how this thing had babies if you don't even
8: know what it is? So fractifusis and all its... Well, its entire community was preserved under volcanic ash flow, rather like Pompeii, so everything in the ecosystem was preserved where it lived. So what we did is we we went out there and we actually mapped out the positions of all the the factor fuses on the bedding planes so we could work out what they were up to. The patterns... We find, which is quite hard to see if you're just looking at the, the data, is that the larger specimens are randomly distributed, but around them you have clusters of medium sized fractifusus, and around the medium ones you then have lots of smaller ones distributed. So if you look at the smaller ones, you have, they actually form clusters of clusters.
7: So the important question then is how do they have babies? Because in modern creatures there's a whole load of different ways you could go about that, right?
8: Yes, uh, with, uh, un- with underwater. Uh, marine organisms, there are three different ways you can produce babies. You can uh, mix eggs and sperm together and make seeds, which then get ejected into the water column and settle elsewhere. You can produce fragments or buds, uh, or you can reproduce um, asexually using uh, stolon or runners like strawberry plants.
7: Okay, so you thought it's got to be one of these three main things. Yes. How can you tell
8: so if you have waterborne propagules that settle out of a current onto a substrate, the current will drag the clusters that get produced into a long, thin line. You, you won't see nice, round clusters. Furthermore, the clusters that you find will be relatively large. Fractifusis clusters are very small, they're only four or five centimetres. So what we thought is that these, these baby fractifusis must have been tethered to their parents in some way.
7: So because all the little ones are clustered around the big ones, yes. and they're not so far away, and they haven't been sort of swept along in a line by a current, yes. Just from that pattern, yeah. you've
8: sort of figured out that they must be using this sort of runner-based mechanism. Yes, um, on the bedding plane, that's how the clusters form. What is quite interesting is that when you break down the fractifusis into different size classes, you see that the, medium, the medium-sized the medium ones and the small ones, which form clusters and clusters of clusters, reproduce in this way. But actually, the largest ones didn't get to the bedding plane in this way. You see a very stereotypical kind of, waterborne propagule stage where you've got, um, they're, they're randomly distributed on the, on the bedding surface, um, but this distribution is, is current swept, you still have directionality to it. So what we think happened is that you had a few colonisers in the water column that landed, and then once they landed and established themselves, they then reproduced very quickly and rapidly via these runners or stolen producing the medium and the small ones that you see. So
7: we still don't know what, we, what they are, but we know how
8: they live now. Yes, we, we know a lot more about how they lived, and we can understand a lot more about, yes, the ecosystems they are part of, but unfortunately what they were is still, still needs to be
0: found. That was Dr Emily Mitchell of the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University chatting to Sharmini Bundell. To read the paper, go to nature.com forward slash nature.
2: Time now for our news chat, and Matt Crenson joins us on the line from Washington, D.C. Hi, Matt. Hi, there. So an ambitious project which is using physics in the fight against cancer has just given out a second round of funding. What was the original aim of this
9: project? It's, uh, well, it's an interesting uh, idea. It's a project of the U.S. National Cancer Institute um, that started around 2009, and it uh, the idea was to give physicists a crack at cancer. This sort of all goes back to 1971 when the so-called war on cancer was declared um, and the US government uh, started spending a lot of money on cancer research. Um, A lot of progress has been made. There's a lot of cancers are much more survivable than they were 40 years ago. But the sort of fundamental understanding of the disease that they were hoping to get has not emerged. Um, It's turned out to be a very complex problem. So the hope with starting the project at the National Cancer Institute on Physical Oncology was that maybe physicists could learn something that would point in that direction. And 2009, it's already been a fair few years. What's been achieved so far? Well, that's that's the question, I think. So the idea back in 2009, was to really look at the fundamental causes of cancer. Um, But obviously, basic research is very hard, and fundamental insights are few and far between. So funding was first given out in 2012, Um, so it's only been a few years. And not surprisingly, nothing really dramatic has come out of it. So the physicists who helped set up the program um, are complaining that the focus is already shifting away from their fundamental search for for insights into causes of cancer itself towards more clinical applications like the, the rest of cancer research. So why is funding being shifted from
2: looking at these really fundamental questions to kind of more standard questions around cancer?
9: Well, it, it really depends on, on whom you ask. Uh, if you ask the managers of the program, they'll say that it isn't being shifted away from these deeper questions. Some observers say, though, that it's a lot easier to justify funding more practical research that can be uh, applied clinically pretty quickly. What hope is there now for these more ambitious projects which are no
2: longer funded under the scheme?
9: Well, I think it's actually pretty good because um, this seems to have unleashed, this program that started about five or six years ago, seems to have unleashed a wave of uh... interdisciplinarity in cancer research and physicists have a lot more opportunities to get involved and physical scientists in general most notably maybe the crick institute in london that's going to open later this year is going to have a lot of opportunities for physicists to do research and there's funding from other sources as well so
2: sticking with physicists but shifting topics slightly other researchers have created a new cousin for graphene haven't they
9: so since the discovery of graphene uh, a few years back uh, physicists have been very excited about these types of materials. Um, graphene is a two-dimensional sheet of carbon. And it's been known, theoretically, that you can um, make these kinds of materials out of a number of different elements. So they've set about trying to make them. We've had uh and phosphorine and other uh, cousins of graphene. But what happened was two years ago, uh, Someone from Stanford University predicted that stannine which is made of tin, would have really interesting electrical conductance properties. Um, basically, it would be able to conduct electricity without producing waste heat at room temperature, which would make it very attractive for use in computers. The latest news is that they've actually produced this materials, uh and um, they weren't able to demonstrate that it has this unusual property.
2: Two years seems really quite quick to go from predicting a material might exist with these exciting properties to actually having
9: it in a lab. Well, I think the whole field is moving forward very rapidly uh, just because there's so much excitement about this. And no one, you know, you know, before graphene, uh, I think it was theoretically predicted that you couldn't produce these sort of two-dimensional crystals, essentially crystal structures, but it, it's now been shown over and over again that you can.
2: It seems very exciting, the possibility of having this material that could conduct electricity without heat, but they haven't been able to show that aspect of the material yet?
9: That's right, it's theoretically predicted, although there are some there are some people who doubt that they've actually produced it, but it, it provides evidence that they actually produced this two-dimensional lattice of, of tin. Um, but the, they weren't able to actually hook it up and show that it can uh, conduct electricity in the way that it's theoretically predicted to. So that's uh, that's waiting for, for future experiments.
2: Does it look feasible that future experiments will firstly be able to absolutely confirm this is stannine and secondly show that it does have this remarkable property?
9: It really remains to be seen. Um, it's uh, It's... It's waiting for the experiments to be done, uh, but they certainly will be, and uh, we'll probably have that answer, the answer to that question in a few more years.
0: Great. Thanks a lot for speaking with us, Matt. That's all we've got time for this week. Next time, we'll have a slightly shorter podcast for you, but fear not, we'll make it a good one. And for those that are interested, you can listen to this year's podcast from Nature, celebrating the Eppendorf Young Investigator Award, which each year celebrates a young biomedical researcher. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Adam Levy.